Well, the Easter bunny has come to my house this morning. He may have come to some, is it a he? I think it's a he. He may have come to some of your houses as well. We were informed last night that the Easter bunny doesn't actually come inside the house, thank goodness, because I was planning to leave the baskets inside. And it turns out he doesn't come inside. He, you leave them outside on the yard. So luckily, Marcella, my older daughter, told me just before we were getting ready for bed. So I was able to put the baskets outside. And indeed, they were filled this morning with all of the things that I remember from Easter baskets of my youth. Chocolate bunnies and chocolate eggs and little books, chocolate more chocolate, yeah, jelly beans, chocolate. <clears throat> when I was growing up as a Unitarian Universalist in a relatively humanist UU congregation and in a pretty secular family, Easter was about baskets and chocolate bunnies and chocolate eggs and chocolate and, um, and, uh, and jelly beans and dresses, of course, uh, which I continue to feel may be the most important part of Easter, and I know that that's true for some other West parents, too. There was a little back and forth among parents of young children at West on Facebook this week about whether it was appropriate to wear Easter dresses to West, and could they, but they had this really cute dress, so actually they didn't care if it was appropriate or not, because they had the really cute dress, and so their daughter was going to be in it. My daughters are in really cute dresses today, I feel. I, uh, and you have to agree, actually. Um, <laughs> So I'm not sure that I really understood fully that Easter was was actually about Jesus until maybe uh, seminary. (laughs) I went to a Methodist seminary, and it's definitely about Jesus for my Christian friends. Now, my friends had a variety of Christian beliefs and different understandings about what the resurrection means and meant and what it is and was. And if you ask me very nicely after platform, I'll tell you my very favorite understanding of the resurrection, which was taught to me by a United Church of Christ feminist biblical scholar from seminary. I just love the way she put it. But certainly the celebration of the resurrection was central to their understanding of Easter, and I think central to how we imagine Easter in America. And so... Before we dive into it a little bit more, in looking a little at some of the other meanings and origins of Easter, I want to say first that I, that I don't do so to deny the power of that resurrection story, the centrality of the experience of the risen Christ to those who celebrate that story today. One thing that I especially love about my life is that in the last few days, my Facebook feed has been a mishmash of recipes for Hiroset. So those of you who were at the Seder last night or who are, who are Jewish know that Hiroset is made at Jewish Seders during Passover. So recipes for Hiroset, pictures of creatively painted eggs, and proclamations that he is risen. So all of those pictures are on my Facebook feed and out in the world today and in my community, and I so love that. Of course, the other thing I love is that all of those posters turned their profiles red this last week, so was a good time to be on Facebook. But growing up, I think perhaps my family and I could be forgiven for having missed the Jesus part of the Easter story. 
I had the chance to go to Target last week and do a little shopping. And you would be hard-pressed to find there a symbol of Easter that does have to do with Jesus, actually. There's a lot of chocolate, a lot of bunnies, and a lot of eggs. Totally unrelatedly to that, the Easter Bunny gave Marcella a book in her, uh, in her Easter basket today. A book by the Berenstein Bears. Everyone knows the Berenstein Bears, right? And it's the Berenstein Bears and the True Meaning of Easter. And I was curious, of course, about what the bunny had found in that book and whether the bunny had found something that would help to explain the Christian Easter story to a five-year-old who wasn't Christian but whose mother wanted her to understand and respect her family's traditions. I thought maybe the Easter Bunny had found that and had put it in the basket. No, it's a lovely book that the Easter Bunny managed to find about the real meaning of Easter per the Berenstein Bears. And the real meaning is lovely, according to the Berenstein Bears. It's not about candy or getting the most treats during the Easter egg hunt, as the bears discover over time. But upon brother and sister bear coming upon a nest of baby birds and seeing real Easter eggs and new life. And so I love this book that the Easter Bunny found, and, and I love the Berenstein Bears, and I'm, and I'm amazed that, that there's a book about the true meaning of Easter, which has to do with, with birds, baby birds in a nest. So that's why I started digging a little bit into the, the kind of concepts and the layers of meaning around the story of Easter. And it turns out that if we're talking about Easter eggs, we're actually not so far off from the Berenstein Bears. So here's some of what I learned about the origins, at least of the name of Easter with that celebration. Easter comes, the name Easter comes either from the Anglo-Saxon goddess of the spring, I think it's Oistre, E-O-S-T-R-E, or a Sumerian goddess, Ishtar, who had her own resurrection story. And that egg-delivering bunny, I got, a, I got a great email today from this little email service I get every day from Quest for Meaning, a kind of Unitarian Universalist liberal religious thing, saying that, that bunnies delivering eggs may be the most improbable part of the holiday. <laughs> so the egg-delivering bunny, the rabbit or the hare was the symbol of Astra, that Anglo-Saxon goddess. And rabbits, of course, are often symbols of newness and fertility. You know what they say about bunnies. And eggs are often symbols of wholeness and new life. Those of you who were at our Seder last night, remember that the egg on the Seder plate holds that symbolism of wholeness and new life. Chocolate, I think, is, is pretty much us, actually. I think that is a meaning layered on by the great religious leaders Nestle and Hershey. But hot cross buns, I discovered. Does anyone have hot cross buns for Easter? Hot cross buns are a tradition, I think especially in Britain, although I'm sure in parts of America as well, apparently originally came from pagan sweetbreads or cakes. The story that I read tells that church leaders, Christian church leaders, have been trying to get the pagans to stop making and exchanging these breads. They were sacred cakes that were made for an idol. But there kept being all this secret, sacred cake baking. You know, they couldn't stomp it out, and so they gave up and put a cross on the cake and blessed it, and it became the hot cross buns for Easter. And it's not just Easter, of course, where we kind of pull all these things together over time. 
We know about Halloween coming from the pagan tradition within the Celtic tradition of Samhain, which was then combined with All Souls' Evening and All Saints' Evening. And one of my very favorite holiday stories is by Lemony Snicket. It's a book called The Latka Who Couldn't Stop Screaming, a Christmas story. (laughs) And it's about a latka who hops out of the pan and starts screaming, and wouldn't you, if you were being fried in oil, I would, and runs screaming through a totally decorated for Christmas village. It's a very cute, there's a cute picture of the latka. Ah, looks like that. Ah. And he's misunderstood all the way as he runs screaming through the village and misplaced into every Christmas story. And he keeps saying, I'm a latka, I'm a latka, I'm not part of the Christmas story. Well, finally, he comes to rest in the forest under a pine tree where he's further misunderstood. And here's how the story goes. Uh, the pine tree says, oh, you're, you're resting at the bottom of, of the pine tree. Oh, you must be a Christmas present. And he says, no. Presents aren't really a big part of Hanukkah, the latka said in a voice hoarse from screaming. There's nothing wrong with giving gifts to loved ones, of course, but it's more important to light the candles for eight consecutive nights to commemorate the miracle in the temple and the miracle of victory, even when you are thoroughly outnumbered, so you shouldn't give up hope. Plus, Santa Claus, said the pine tree. The latka was too exhausted to scream. Santa Claus has nothing to do with it, the latka says. Christmas and Hanukkah are two completely different things. But different things can often blend together, said the pine tree. Let me tell you a funny story about pagan rituals. (laughs) It's it's a pine tree, get it? (laughs) So, of course, the tree, the Christmas tree, decorated in the wintertime is a pagan ritual itself from northern Europe. It always strikes me as funny when 24-7 news commentators try to stir everybody up about the war against Christmas, you know, and say that we should all be allowed to have Christmas trees in the town square. And I think, I'm not sure that's the one you mean. (laughs) The truth is that we take all kinds of holidays and we mush them together, sometimes not even aware that we're doing any mushing, you know. Mushing, you may be surprised to find out, is not actually the official church history word. (laughs) The word that we want is syncretism. And here's a definition from Van Harvey's A Handbook for Theological Terms, which I have on my shelf for handy reference. I really do. It's a great book. Syncretism, Van Harvey writes, is the attempt to combine teachings and doctrines from different and apparently divergent traditions. The term is often applied to certain historical periods and cultures which are characterized by the mixture of different ideas and cultural elements. So, is syncretism good? Bad? Neither? Part of it, I think, depends on how it happens. Often we think about syncretism, about that kind of mushing together of different traditions happening when cultures meet each other, and not infrequently cultures and religious traditions meet each other somewhat violently, particularly over history. And so syncretism comes about both between the sort of colonialism and and kind of violent meeting of cultures and also through a sort of natural combination, you know, when people just start getting together and noticing that they're doing different things at different times. I think it's usually a mix of both when those traditions come together and maybe a mix of good and bad or it depends who writes the story. 
You know, you think about the priests who finally gave up and blessed the cakes, and you might say that the priests took over the cake baker's tradition and turned it into something entirely else, something that it wasn't. Or you might say that the cake bakers found a way to keep their tradition alive as the world changed around them. Probably depends who you ask. Sometimes that kind of mushing, that syncretism, gives way to whole new religions. Santeria is a religious tradition in Cuba, its own tradition in and of itself, a mix of Christianity, specifically Catholicism, and West African religious traditions, particularly centered around Yoruba. I had a friend who was a priestess within the uh, tradition of Santeria, practicing Santeria, but she definitely considers herself a Catholic as well. So, you know, we are no less complicated than the big traditions, no less mushed and syncretized. I do think that there are times and people that find syncretism to be, to be pretty negative, to find it sort of either a misappropriation or a diluting, that the mushing together comes in ways that just don't work for them. Times, of course, when whole customs or whole cultures have been absorbed or misappropriated, taking on meanings that they never had and weren't intended to have. Although most of the time, I think now syncretism happened so long ago that we have to really pull things apart to get at what their original meanings might have been. And the experience of syncretism isn't experienced as harmful only by those who were absorbed, by the, by the cake bakers, for instance. As I was researching the history of Easter, I found um, folks who had written about it from a journalistic standpoint, folks who had written about it from a neo-pagan standpoint, and also folks who had written about it from a Christian standpoint. And so one uh, was a Church of God website in particular, which is a kind of conservative Christian American denomination, writing about how, um, how... how, Christian, how Easter was extra-biblical, outside of the Bible, and their reaction against the pagan elements that had been incorporated into the Christian celebration of the resurrection. Instead of celebrating Easter, those folks celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And I find in myself a sympathy as they're looking for the purest form of their story, trying to get the bunnies and the chocolate out of the way, to proclaim the truth that speaks to them most deeply, to bring back the layers of meaning that have been added in over time and look for what was there at the center. So what about for us, for liberal religious folks, for humanists? Mary mentioned that a few weeks ago, I talked about the live conversation here at West, ongoing, and I imagine ongoing just forever, about the reclamation of language, about the idea of either finding new language and new words for things, verses and or, slash, slash, redefining, reclaiming, and reimagining old language and old words. And the same goes, I think, for the reclamation of traditions versus creating new traditions. We do a little bit of both here at WES. Our humanist Seder last night is a reclamation using ancient stories and ancient texts as well as incorporating our own values and our own ideas as we reinterpret and reimagine those stories. Our spring festival, which is coming up at the beginning of May this year, is a new tradition created to celebrate the idea of new life emerging from seeming death, which is at the heart of so many religious traditions. 
including both pagan festivals of the spring equinox and the Christian resurrection story. But spring festival, it, it, which is common to many ethical societies, is something new, not a reclamation, but a drilling down and a creation of a new form to celebrate those kind of um, commonly held values and ideals. Talking about reclamation, there was an article in the New York Times recently about atheists observing Lent. Did anyone see that article? I know that some of the young adults in our community did because we actually talked about it at the Young and the Thirsty on Friday night, or Thirsty for Knowledge, although we do meet at a bar. And, um, and thoughts ran within that group, ran the gamut from, oh, let's do that here, Wes should, should give things up for Lent, to let's not. <laughs> And in between. The interesting thing to me as we talked about that idea, this was a, an article about a variety of different kind of young atheists who had adopted the idea of giving something up and were, and were practicing it throughout Lent. The interesting thing for me was that it, had been, it was seen in many ways by different folks in that group on Friday night, different Wes folks. By some, it was seen as a reclamation and a redefining, so taking a tradition that people may remember from childhood and making it meaningful now for their lives. For some, it was creating meaning from a concept, the concept of sacrifice or giving up, that's just good in and of itself, apart from any historical or religious tradition around it, just wanting to bring that concept and that practice to West. And for some, the idea of giving something up for Lent was, was about a connection to friends and families, to communities of people who are participating in that tradition in a more traditional way. When we approach a holiday like Easter, we have so many choices as a community and also as families and individuals. Do we choose just the pieces that are meaningful to us? Do we celebrate it as an entirely secular day of food and fun? Someone else in my Facebook feed posted Merry Chocolate Day this morning. Do we examine the Christian story ourselves and with our children? I know one Unitarian Universalist parent who watches Jesus Christ Superstar every Good Friday with her, with her family to talk about the Christian story with her children. Do we ignore the holiday because either none of the layers are meaningful for us or because some of the layers are just too heavy, too much, too not us to peel away? Do we embrace it in all its complexity, the layers differently weighted at different times in our lives but with a kind of it's all good somehow together mystical view? I imagine that the answers may be different for every one of us in this room. I think that what I hope is that we find ways to celebrate what links many of the layers together. You know, you can't just throw any old religious traditions together and call it syncretism. You need just the right things to make a good mush. So one way to look at the syncretism in Easter is to imagine that the Christians and the pagans recognized something in each other. That maybe underneath the invasions and the rebellions and the secret cake baking although I do really like the idea of all this little, this little coterie of secret cake bakers, but that underneath that all there was actually a glimmer of shared identity, of shared story, the story of new life emerging, a story of resurrection told a thousand different ways, told in the story of Jesus and the story of Ishtar and the story of a crocus 
pushing up out of the unlikely, almost frozen earth. Now, for some of us in this room and in this country and this world, one of those stories is the story. The story our life is shaped around. And the others are only stories. For some of us, one or more of those stories just can't be heard without pain. For some of us, all the stories have at their heart the same message. And we're happy to learn about them and to celebrate the messages underneath them. So I wish you today, whichever one of those feels right for you, I guess, and maybe an openness to peeling back the layers, to seeing the different flavors that each one brought when they came together in that mush. There's a Dar Williams song from Christmas time, but it feels right now too. I wonder if any of you know it, about the Christians and the pagans coming together for a holiday meal. I see some nods. They come together kind of unsure and uncertain how this is all going to work out. A Christian uncle and his pagan niece But they find hope in the learning and in the celebration, as Dar William writes in the song, that now when Christians sit with pagans, only pumpkin pies are burning. Yeah, I'll give you a minute. Because they used to burn each other, and it's way better than it's pies. Dar Williams goes on, so the Christians and the pagans sat together at the table, finding faith and common ground the best that they were able Lighting trees in darkness, learning new ways from the old, and making sense of history, and drawing warmth out of the cold. Making sense of history. All the Easter stories that I find, all the Easter traditions, are about new life. About new hope found just when you think all hope is lost. An empty tomb eggs found in the most unlikely of places. Spring, come again. Whatever your story today, may it be one of hope. And maybe Dar Williams is right, that it is in the coming together where at least some of the hope lies.